Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health Exclamation Point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's See what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. Hi, Susan. How are you doing this evening? I am doing very well, indeed. Between the last time we spoke and now, I have been to Tucson, Arizona to spend time with my oldest friend, Betsy. 
Oh, wow. Awesome. Yes. Betsy wrote about her experience with breast cancer treatment in my breast cancer question mark breast health exclamation the wise woman way book and uh, Mm -hmm. she's gosh decades and decades past her cancer and uh, we have known each other since our early 20s so that's well over 50 years Mm. it's uh, very sweet to have a friendship that goes on for so long and she was talking about when um, someone that she was very, very close with died, and she felt like she was having a heart attack. <gasps> and then, <sighs> not much later, she ran across an article on broken heart syndrome. So real. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> dying of a broken heart. Mm. Yeah, it happened. There was the mother and daughter. Didn't that happen not too long ago? A famous oh, daughter right. died. Yes, yes, mother. yes, yes. In front yes. of me, I have something that looks like, well, when you look at it, you might say, gosh, is that some kind of skinned, dried fig Because it's kind of brownish. And what you see is a lot of seeds, but they're not like, they're bigger, really, than fig seeds. And then when you taste it, it tastes a little like fig, but it's it's sweeter. And it's a swaro fruit. Wow. Where's that from? That's out west they grow those? Swaro cactus, right, which grows in the Sonoran Desert, which is where Tucson is. And mm-hmm. the swaro, it's like, you know, if you, if you were to say to somebody, draw a cactus, they would either draw... A swaro, which is upright and has arms, or a prickly pear, which is like lots and lots of bunny ears or mouse ears, or right. So true. I those the I the first one you said came to mind first with the arms, and sometimes you'll see even like a, a hat put on top of it or something in cartoons. Yes, and mm-hmm. then the ones you talk. Yep, and then the prickly pear. Those are exactly the two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, those are the cacti that everybody knows. So this is the fruit of the one with the arms, the swirl. Whoa. Is it, and it's sweet, you said? It's mildly sweet? Yes, it's mildly sweet. Mm. And Betsy was telling me that two years ago there was a good harvest, and you pretty much have to get it like... On the day when it's ripe. And then you knock them down and you like split them open and you, you take out. It's, this is the inner part of it. The rind isn't edible. Can you hear me? Yeah. I can hear you. I'm just fascinated. That's the seeds. I'm crunching up the seeds between my teeth. They're very, very seedy. So interesting. So it's a very, it sounds like, like a really dense, high energy If you Like she gave me. I don't know, you know, like the innards of two of them, and I've been eating a little bit of it day by day, and I still have a whole untouched one. Wow. Yeah. We went to a 
really beautiful botanical garden, the Mission Gardens, and saw the herbalist who turned me on to Mellow Lotus. Like As a matter of she was the last a presentation. The last time the three of us were together, Donna and Betsy and I, was in December of 2019 at the Psychedelic Plants Conference in Tucson. And this is when I was still dealing with the fistula, and I was in a huge amount of pain. Um, mm. Donna said to me, you look like you're in pain. And I said, yeah. She said, describe the pain to me. I said, oh, it feels like somebody's stabbing me with hot, broken glass. And she said, oh, okay. And the next day, this was a three-day conference, she came in with a bottle of Melalotus tincture. And she said, the eclectics, according to David Winston's research, suggest Melalotus is a specific painkiller for sharp, burning pain. Mm. I put and three drops of the tincture in my palm, sucked it up with a little saliva, <clears throat> and I would say my pain was like, like lessened by half within five minutes. So amazing. I had never heard of that plant being used for pain. I just, I'm pretty sure I know the plant because it's, it's the common like yellow roadside clover, right? It is or... indeed. It's, it's sweet clover. Oh. It's a tall clover. Uh-huh. The one she gave me was Melalotus alba, which is the rarer one. But we have made the tincture from the officinalis, the yellow one. And we figured since it was called officinalis, we were probably on on the okay by using it. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I still take a little bit at this point, a tiny bit of that tincture. So, hooray, mm. hooray. For Melalotus. So, what's uh, anything up in your barn or your garden or your life? Or well, the tulips have started to sprout up, just barely <laughs> the surface. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, signs that spring is really, really coming on. And um, last week, after we talked, let's see, it was the night after we had an ice storm. So that was so interesting it was I was out at the barn closing up and I started to hear the sound and it sounded like crackling electricity and so I just you know got as quiet as it could in the barn and started listening to follow the sound and it was taking me closer and closer to the door of the barn and then I get to the doorway and it's outside in the trees and then I start listening and all around the neighborhood are just huge limbs and trees and the cracking sounds were so it was stunning I just stood there in awe so I saw a few limbs go down on trees in our yard uh, or in our land area and um, the next day you know there were a lot of big limbs down and some trees had just fallen over and snapped at the base so that was interesting that was my first real ice storm I would say especially living here where there's so many trees it's been so, really awe-inspiring. It is. I, it is. When I got inside, I opened the sliding glass door and just stood there and listened because, yeah, awe-inspiring. Like, yeah, I, it was just 
it's stunning. I was just stunned. Wow, this is so powerful. And listening to the trees and the ice, it was just amazing. So, mm. yeah, so that, that happened. But um, now it's just been, you know, some cleanup. And, and um, yeah, spring is underway. The goats seem extra frolicky, even though nobody's, you know, we don't have any kids this year. Nobody's expecting. But they've got spring fever, it seems. <laughs> They are getting a little um, well, cabin fever. Yeah. <laughs> that urge in February to kick up your heels and shout yeehaw. Hmm? That's pretty much what they were doing today. <laughs> the sun was out, was in the high 40s. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get to interview tonight someone who interviewed me. Chris Elcock, an independent historian based in France, with a Ph.D. from the University of Saskatchewan, which is in Canada. For 12 years, he studied the history of LSD and psychedelics. In 2013, one of his papers, the American Psychedelic Movement received an award his book, Psychedelic New York, A History of LSD in the City, has just been published and will be available in May. So he interviewed me for the mm-hmm. books, and I ran a store, created and ran a store called the Psychedelic Edison during the psychedelic mm-hmm. years in New York. And so I love that name. <laughs> it really fun to get to interview Chris. And, um, you know, talk to him about Tim and New York and California and beans and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, stay that with sounds us. super fun. Yeah, stay with us mm-hmm. until 9 o'clock when uh, Chris Elcock will be here or come back at 9 o'clock. Anything else you want to talk about before we start answering questions? Ah, oh, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm good. Thank you. Are there any questions? Uh, we do have a hand raised, and I'll remind everyone listening that if you've got a question and would like to be live with Susan this evening, please press 1 so that we can see your hand go up in the queue. And our first caller has dialed in from the 907 area code. From the 907, you are live with Susan. Hello, Susan. This is Kai from Alaska. Hi, Kai. Hey. I had to chime in since you mentioned LSD. It's not really a question. It's just a, kind of a story. Oh, good. Um, Tell us. Yeah. Yes. Um, I was teaching a bunch of older women. Uh, it was a painting class. And, you know, they were like grandmas type, so I thought. And uh, I don't know, one one woman came in late to the class, and um, she, was, she was a very outgoing woman, and LSD came up. <laughs> and it turns out, in this, this woman, she started talking about her past. She was one of the first female uh, race car drivers in California, and uh, started talking about being a, you know, riding her motorcycle, sex, drugs, and, you know, 
in California, and these older ladies started to chime in. You would never think. Um, they were all just talking about their taking LSD and how great in the good old days and how they're still growing pot. And, you know, it was just, it was an amazing class. Because <laughs> when, when I first walked in there, you know, you're just like looking at, okay, there's a bunch of elderly ladies but these elderly ladies wanted to be called hags. <laughs> All right for them. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> and it was it was so great, and the class went on. And if, and if you don't class. understand, listeners, if any of you don't understand why they would want to be called hags, I refer you to Mary Daly, especially her book The Wickedary, in which you will find the true definition of hag. I think that's where they were going with the hags. It was a, it was a good thing. A very good. <laughs> yes, it, it is. It was a very good thing. But it was just you know like one lady came in with a walker. You you know this is a, your stereotypical like grandmas, but they right. were not they were not stereotypical grandmas. These women <laughs> kicked, these women kicked ass. I was like I the class stopped and, and we just. It was just, uh, you know, they're just telling stories. It was absolutely fantastic. But, yeah, it was all about good old mushrooms and all that stuff. It was, and I just, I heard you talking about your guest, and I said, I, I, I got to call up and share this story. It was uh, kind of like a Valentine's Day story. Yeah. Those women, those, those women were just, I, I absolutely adored them. So I just wanted to share that one. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and giving us that thrill as well. Thank you, Susan. I will be listening. Green blessings. Good night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. And I'll remind everyone listening, if you have a question or would like to speak live with Susan this evening, please press 1 and your hand will go up in the queue and we'll be able to see you and open up your line. Uh, I don't see any hands raised at this time, um, but let's see. I do have a couple email questions. All right. Did you like? All right. Yes. Let's see. All right. Just a moment here. Uh, I have heard you speak several times of the benefits you receive from keeping a consistent yoga practice. Will you please share more about the types of yoga you recommend? How often and of yoga specifically is most effective to be practiced? Thank you. Oh, what a wonderful question. And certainly it, it is one of those words like meditation that can cover a huge array of different practices. The arc of my yoga has led me to three yoga rules. Don't do yoga every day. I have sustained a practice of an hour and a half once a week for over 50 years. 
I see many people get into yoga, they gung-ho, get on the mat every day, practice every day. And perhaps they practice as much in the two years as I've done in the 50 years I've done it. I don't know. But I know that what really tones is what is sustained and better a little over a long time than a lot over a short time, even if they wind up being somewhat equal in amount. So not every day. My daughter and I, Justine and I, have been going to a um, Silver Sneakers yoga class. So now I'm actually doing yoga twice a week. And I'm careful not to push myself in any pose that's the same in both of my classes. And most of them aren't. Um, So that works out very well. I tend to do a more lower body yoga class on my own and the one at the uh, the gym, the Silver Sneakers class is much more upper body. It's not in, most of it's done in a chair. And I also, of course, make use of hypericum tincture. It is certainly one of my favorite uses of hypericum, of St. Joan's Wort. The tincture of the fresh flowering top, a dropper full, after you have done vigorous exercise, pretty much eliminates all muscle pain, and it seems to stop lactic acid buildup in the muscles. Have you ever used it that way, Sarah Ellen? I have not, actually. I didn't know that. That's so fascinating. I'm going to have to give that a try right away. Yeah. So after a workout, um, I, I know people who run, and they put it in their water bottle when they run so that they don't wind up with uh, Charlie horses and, and muscle problems. And so don't do it every day. Do take hypericum tincture, especially if you think you've overdone it. But you know what? You're a lot less likely to overdo it if you don't do it in the morning. Our bodies are actually generally not really prepared for yoga in the morning. And we have these images in our mind of what the poses are supposed to look like and how flexible where we're supposed to be. And, and we push ourselves far too hard in the morning. We wind up injuring ourselves. So don't do yoga before the afternoon. Let it be something that takes you into the evening and you will also then be far less likely to engage in what we might term aerobic yoga. I've been in some aerobic yoga classes where there is an alternation between this pose and that pose, but you alternate by almost by doing jumping jacks. And that's certainly not the classical yoga that I learned, um, which was yoga the yoke, which was about tying things together. So if you move forward, then you move backward, and then you rest, and then you move to the right, and then you move to the left, and then you rest. And there is very good scientific studies now showing that that kind of, let's call it exercise, 
tends to be very beneficial where you do something and then have a short rest. And the rest in yoga aren't long rests. They might be five to ten second rests. But they really reset and bring into our memory in a very important way what we're doing. So that it becomes not just yoga at that time, but yoga throughout your life. So we're not going to do it every day. And that will help us really pay attention to it when we do it. And we're not going to do it in the morning because when we do it in the morning, it's kind of like it's this task of this chore that we somehow, are we going to do it before or after our coffee? It's not a good idea to drink your coffee before you do the yoga. So if you really want your coffee, you're just going to try to get through the yoga so you get coffee. No, 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 no. We want to set aside a time to do our yoga and make it that special time so that when I got out of the hospital, I knew that I do yoga Wednesday evening. And Wednesday evening, there I was. And there wasn't very much yoga I could do. As we know, I slept through the class, but that's okay. I was there. And what's the third thing? We're going to do yoga at ambient air temperature is unless that ambient air temperature is too hot. It's pretty easy to injure yourself doing yoga in a heated room or doing yoga even in air temperature, which is super hot or in the sun. We tend to be able to stretch a little bit more than we actually can accommodate and it pulls things, and we wind up again with muscle tears, little rips in our tendons and ligaments, and frustrating difficulties that kind of toss us out of yoga. So let me be clear. My goal for yoga is not so much what you're doing or how long you're doing it, but that you're able to sustain it for the rest of your life. I certainly expect to still be doing yoga for the rest of my life. If you had to put a label to the kind of yoga that I tend to do, I would call it yin yoga. And I will also admit that when I'm doing the poses that the teachers are suggesting to me. I am also envisioning and activating the energy circuits in my body. After all, it's there in the yoga just like it is in Qigong, so I don't see any reason why I can't combine them in my own mind. There you have it. Do it every day. Don't do it in the morning. And don't do it really hot. Take care of yourself. Make yoga special. Focus on it. Let it be something that's deep rather than a task that has to be tended to. What a good question. Nice. Nice. Um, we do have one more email question. 
Um, at this time, I don't see a hand that has gone up in the queue. So I'll remind everyone again that if you'd like to speak live with Susan this evening, please press one so that we can see your hands go up in the queue. Um, and let's see, would you like to hear the second email question? Please. All right. Um, hi, Susan. What are your thoughts on pet food? I've been researching ingredients and formulations, and I'm starting to wonder if dry bagged food is capable of truly nourishing my dogs. What do you suggest for pet diets? I really love my dogs. I have two, no children, and try to do what's best. I really appreciate your advice and suggestions. I feed my cat kibble. In fact, I feed my cat Purina kibble. And I can't remember a time when I haven't fed whatever cat I've had Purina kibble. Most of my cats live long, healthy lives. They have access to the kibble all the time. I just keep a full bowl, bowl for them and, of course, access to water whenever possible, flowing water. I had a little pump that I had in a bowl that worked for a couple of years. My cat really liked that. And then I bought this fancy water fountain that had a little pump, but that soon broke as well. So now... um she comes in and asks if we'll go and turn on a faucet for her, as well as, of course, going outside. There's a lot of um, difficulty about suburban cats who eat a lot of birds. I don't see country cats um, having as much access to birds and what I do see her having access to are the kinds of things that I would like less of around my environment, mice, voles, things that are going to chew and eat and generally cause me great distress. And this is one of the reasons that I keep company with cats is to have them be a deterrent to the little four-footed critters. It was the only animals that Juliet DuBerkeley-Levy said should not have been put on the ark. She actually told me that she thought Noah made a mistake when he put rats and mice on the ark, that they should not have been allowed to be saved or to exist. I don't feel that badly about them, but I don't mind that my cat leaves mice and voles and rats and so on. I have actually not seen her with a rat, but I do believe that having a cat around does at least in some some regards, and I do a lot of other things to keep rats away. They are always a constant uh, thing that one has to think about when there is a barnyard to not be an attractive home to the rats. I, I know you think about that, yes, Sarah Ellen? Oh, yeah, definitely. We don't see too many rats, fortunately, here, uh, but definitely we keep it neat and tidy and um yeah in florida we had fruit rats in the citrus trees the wild citrus and oh my goodness those rats 
were so big. And in the city here, of course, they have major rat problems. So, yeah, want to keep it so that the rats do not find this to be a good place. We have five cats in our barn, and they do a great job with the mice and the voles, like you said. Do you see them bringing in many birds? No, I don't. Um, I help a friend tend um, at her uh, place, and I've seen her cats bring in more birds than here, but she has um, a lot of open prairie space in the back, so it's really easy for the birds to get ambushed, I guess, by the cats. But it doesn't happen so often. But her cats, I've seen them get rabbits. It, that seems to be one of their favorites, is the rabbits. Little, little rabbits, yes. I've seen them get little rabbits, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and really, they don't leave much of them at all. The little mice and the voles, I, that's all I've really seen our cats bring in. Um, so, But not too many birds. But at her house, I, I have seen that some. But I really think it's because the one cat hunts on the edge of the prairie. So he's got, like, the forest behind him and the prairie in front. And prairie in front. <laughs> Happy hunting. <laughs> so, um, so I don't know about dogs. I don't keep dogs. I will tell you what Juliet DeBerkeley-Levy would say. She would say raw meat. She would say fast them. Don't feed them. Then feed them raw meat. Her idea was natural rearing, and I believe that it is true that in the wild that wolves don't eat from an open bowl of kibble like a cat might, that they work together and get food, and eat a lot, and then be some time before there's more food. In fact, our ancestors might have eaten that way as well. You know, imagine if you, like, bring in a whale or a woolly mammoth. It's, like, far worse than a big apple harvest or zucchini up the wazoo, you know, suddenly it's like, oh, I love that they found in some um, lakes the remains of of mammoth as though they had been put in the lake as a kind of cold storage. Wow, they must have been so right. well preserved. So there's like butchering marks on the bones, and it's not like the bones were like thrown in there. Like, it's like the Oh. Like enough of it. They thought, oh, you know, they, you know, brought this mammoth in for food, and then they just kind of put it in the cold water to keep it. Wow. Oh wow. So that's what Juliet would say. Juliet would say, only give them raw meat, and only give it give it to them occasionally. I know that Justine has dogs in Costa Rica and that they can buy meaty bones for the dogs 
and that they pretty much have raised those dogs that way with meaty bones and straps, which are, I believe, easier to get there than here because almost everybody in Costa Rica has a dog and feeds their dog that way. And if you don't have Juliet's book about dogs, get it. Because I think that she will have a lot to say. Her dogs were prize-winning dogs. Beautiful, beautiful dogs. So she certainly runs rings around me in terms of dogs. Dogs and goats don't get along. Although Farmer John has a guard dog named Thor who goes mm-hmm. against. And, oh, nice. Is yeah, like Thor and the goat get along. Thor is some kind of um, big big shepherd, not like a German shepherd, some some much bigger bodied dog. Wow, fun. Yep. Nice. Working dogs are so amazing. But, I, yeah, I'm yeah. Really working. You know, yeah. Thor keeps everything away, mm-hmm. but especially, you know, bear and... When I first started keeping goats in this area, people warned me about the, um, they're called um, panthers here, mountain lions. Ooh. And the conservationists say there has haven't been mountain lions in the Catskills for a long time, but that doesn't keep various people from fighting them and traps. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So. <laughs> mm. <laughs> wow. Doing good work, Thor. <laughs> Costa Rica. Um, I talked to several people who were very disgruntled and who now kept their herd animals inside a shelter at night because of deprivations by mountain lions. Oh, goodness. Oh, that would be horrific. Right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't have those here, but I have heard of, like you said, in Wisconsin, which is only about an hour from here, people say that they have seen them and that they see tracks, but officially, you know, they're not supposed to be here. Exactly. Or there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, no, they're all gone. Yeah, well, what are we, yeah, what are we seeing here? Okay. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> This is not like a yeah. raccoon. It's mel- it melted in the snow. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think that's yeah, right. All right. Um, well, we do have two hands raised. I don't know if I don't want to interrupt if you were still going on with that question. No, I'm not. Let's answer those questions. All right. So um, we have two hands hands that have pressed one, and it looks like the next caller is dialed in from the 206 area code. From the 206, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. This is Shay. How are you? Oh, Shay. Hi. How wonderful to hear your voice. You Ah. too, and thank you for your voicemail. 
Oh, it's great to hear your voice. You're in the mountains now. I am in the great goddess Blue Ridge Mountains, and they vibrate so deeply. This is exactly where I'm supposed to be. I so absolutely can feel that. Mm. Yes, it's like the hollows are giving you safe places to curl up. Yes, that's exactly right. And I am calling you tonight because um, I'm at a crossroads with a health issue. Um, I have a very old knee injury from when I was a teenager, and I had ACL repair surgery. Um, I had the surgery probably about 25 years ago. And um, over the years, my knee has swelled up and kind of, you know, been complaining to me at various times, but then it would always kind of, you know, return to normal. But it's been in a constant flare-up since the summer. And um, oh. when I say flare-up, it's it's swollen. Um, there was a huge bump that I could feel that I was concerned about. Like a, It felt like a hard structure. And what I've since learned is that that's because my cartilage in my knee is totally gone. Um, oh. So it's actually bone on bone and it's causing my leg bones to kind of wedge in this way. So they're kind of like that bump that I was feeling was actually my bone. Um, and thank God for comfrey. Comfrey is the only thing that's keeping me going. I've been doing a comfrey poultice every night for a couple months. Um, most nights, not every night, most nights just with the leftover herbs from infusion and I'll, I'll put it on my knee and I'll wrap an ace bandage around it and I'll sleep that way. And when I wake up in the morning, it's like I have a new knee and it lasts for a while, you know, usually for four or five hours, but then the pain comes back. So I was following your seven steps, um, uh, seven medicines. And at first I just was kind of observing and watching and listening and, you know, working on nourishing, lots of linden and comfrey especially, um, doing the comfrey compress, um, rubbing different kinds of oils in it. I was using my dandelion blossom oil just as a meditation and kind of sending love to my knee. And then um, I would also anoint my knee with um, hypericum oil. So all those things were like short-term, they would help. But it's just, it's gotten to the point where I'm limping recently, and I've started to have to say no to things in my life um, because of my knee. Like, I was going to do a teacher dance team at our high school for this um, talent show, and I had to say, you know what, I can't because my knee. So all of this to say, thank you for listening, is um, I finally went to a doctor. I hate going to doctors. I didn't want to do that, but I was like, I've, I've gone through all these steps. So I need, um, I just need to get some additional information. So I got the x-ray and that's when I actually have the visual evidence of what's happening with my knee. Um, and the doctor I talked to said this, this one knee looks like the knee of an 80 year old. He's like, frankly, I don't even know how you're moving around as well as you are and functioning. And I was like, well, (laughs) Lyndon and Humphrey, that's how, but 
the need, the, the, the cartilage is not going to generate, you know, regenerate itself. Right. So I am pretty sure I'm going to get a knee replacement surgery. Um, but I wanted to call you and just kind of feel in to all of the possibilities with you. I will say, um, and then I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, when I saw the image on the x-ray, even with all of the fear and the resistance that I feel towards surgery, this sense of calm came over me and was like, okay, so I have information now and my ability to live my life has been really limited by this knee thing. And I'm young-ish, I'm 46. So um, on my work with nourishing herbal infusions, I believe in my body's ability to, um, to heal from the surgery and to heal well and thoroughly. So I'm just, I wanted to consult with you and hope to hear some of your wisdom and your love about it. <clears throat> the here most as a complaint from people who've had a knee or knees replaced is that they can't kneel. Okay. Mm. Wow. That's big. Yeah. You just, it doesn't bend that much. And you don't want to put that much pressure on it. Mm-hmm. So, you might want to talk to the person who would do the surgery about how much mobility and flexibility you stand to lose. Mm-hmm. There is definitely less pain. Yeah, there's going to be pain. There will be pain from the surgery. But it will, instance that I know of, for both knees and hips, and I know a few people with shoulders as well, the pain of the surgery was easier to get through because one knows it's self-limiting. Mm-hmm. Whereas the pain that you have in your knee now is a pain that has been there for a long time. And a mm-hmm. pain that seems in every respect likely to change only for the worse. Without the surgery. Without the surgery. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And... So, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, you'd be walking with a cane. Mm-hmm. And you would be hobbling around. And we don't want it to be that way. You don't want it to be that way. You don't want the limitations that you're now experiencing in your life due to this problem and will having your knees replaced 
change that. It will. Mm-hmm. It definitely will. Will it make everything in your life life bright and beautiful and gay? Well, hell no. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. Helen had started out with severe rheumatoid arthritis in her teens. She's had both knees replaced, both hips replaced, both shoulders replaced. Whoa! Begging for elbows. She's a bionic woman. (laughs) And she's so happy with all of it. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. I was going to ask about people you knew who'd had the surgery and what your understanding of their after effect was, if they were happy with it, if they were glad they did it. Yes, in general, glad. Some have said to me, oh, I wish I hadn't done it. And I look at them and I say, you remember how much pain you were in? And they go, I wasn't in any pain. I'm like, "Mm -hmm, you don't remember. So do something to remind yourself of how much pain you're in now. Mm Mm-hmm. So that you can look back on that and say, well, I may be in some pain now, but it's not like it was then. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. There's a full moon in Virgo coming, and I was going to do a, a ritual um, ah. around it, working with yeah. that Virgo energy. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Um, okay. So I know that Comfrey is going to be such a close ally of mine, um, continuing up until I have the surgery and then afterward to assist in the healing of, of all of those tissues and things. Are there other things that you would recommend for me in preparation for the best possible outcome? Um, it's going to happen in June, probably mid-June, so I have some months to kind of prepare. One thing I definitely wanted to do was like some, I don't know how to describe it, but like a shamanic like um, pre-surgery where I will, you know, kind of have a vision and move through the process of surgery and envision like how smooth and perfect and flawless it's going to be and like move through a detailed visualization of the healing and everything coming back together. So that's definitely something I want to work on, not just once, but maybe like every night or a few nights a week and just kind of create a meditation around it. What a beautiful idea. Yes. So that you are creating it, and it's getting more and more real as you get closer and closer to it. Mm-hmm. It's not just this sudden thing that suddenly happens that somebody else is doing. It's something that you have brought into being. Yes. Yes. I'm going to take echinacea 
before going into the hospital, high doses, um, to get my, feed my macrophages, get them going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if, if, then, if, if you can get somebody to come into recovery, depending on the COVID restrictions, all right, which are going going bye-bye, all right, mm-hmm. and somebody can come and put Arnica gel, the homeopathic Arnica gel, on the soles of your feet as soon as possible after the surgery. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about that. Okay. <clears throat> um, it's not the you thing you're going to be doing for yourself that... right now. Right. Right. You're not going to be bending that knee for a while. Mm-hmm. So in some places they are doing prehab as well as rehab. Mm-hmm. There's specific exercises to strengthen the muscles, the specific muscles that need to be strengthened in order to make smooth transition to your nice, new, wonderfully functioning artificial knee, Mm -hmm. which doesn't need cartilage. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. And I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that this is going to be smooth. I think that it's going to... That I will hear you say, oh, yeah, you said, many people say, why did I wait so long? Mm-hmm. And I think you're, I think you're going to be saying that, well, why did I, excuse me, why did I wait so long to do this? <laughs> yeah. Which is now to, not to downplay that it is a big deal. Mm-hmm. I think and, I would be a lot more scared if I didn't have my plant allies. I just yes, have like right. this unspeakable faith and comfrey. I'm like comfrey is gonna yeah. comfrey bring me through this. And it, I found in hospital settings that I really had to defend my right undrugged existence. Mm-hmm. And there were certain, you know, they wanted uh, IV antibiotics while I was there. I was willing to go IV antibiotics while I was there. I wasn't going to fight them on that. They wanted to give me a pill in the morning to make me pleasant. I wasn't going there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I really, you know, what what is this? Why are you giving this to me? Is this really needed? Mm-hmm. Right? Can't add that, you say, because we have allies. We're not totally dependent on them. Mm-hmm. So did you say yes to the IV antibiotics? I couldn't quite hear, or did you say no? I, oh, yes, I did, definitely. You did? Okay. After all, I was in a hospital. Yeah. Right. He, um, the surgeon was like, oh, and we'll prescribe you antibiotics beforehand. And I'm, I didn't say anything to him because I know how doctors are. I was just like, you can prescribe all you want, buddy. I'm not taking that shit. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> right.
write your paper down for me, but I have echinacea. I don't need that. Mm-hmm. Antibiotics don't work proactively to prevent infection, idiot. They don't. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Did you miss that week at school? <laughs> <laughs> when pressed, many doctors will say, well, I just prescribed it because people expect it. Which is too bad. Mm. Fascinating, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the way the insurance companies are constantly putting the squeeze on them. <sighs> Thank, you. Thing, Thank you, insurance companies, for paying for knee replacements. Yes. Yes. Much, blessed much appreciated. Yes. Yep. All right. Now you have to call back. Yes. And you can you can call back like maybe just before the surgery or you can call back afterwards. But I would really appreciate if you will call back into the show so that we can follow along with you. Mhm. I will. Thank you so much for everything that you share with us, Susan, and thank you for your time tonight and for connecting with me. Thank you, Shay. I love you so much. I love you, too. Green blessings. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. All right. And there are two callers that have pressed one to raise their hands. And our next caller has dialed in from the 908 area code. From the 908, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. It's Carol from New Jersey. Hi. Hey, Carol. How are you tonight? Hey. Oh, I'm wonderful because you're on the phone and you're giving us all your beautiful knowledge. Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, love you so much. So, Mm. um, mm, talk about a couple things. One, death. And um, I'm 76. Um, I think we're the same. You just had your birthday. Right, I just a tiny bit older than you, but other than that, the same. Yeah, um, and so I'm experiencing um, like two or three people, well, people dying, and um, it's 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 shocking, especially when they're um, contemporary. And um, I just wanted to get your perspective on that, and also I didn't know if you would be you know, willing to share what your thoughts are about burial and cremation. And, mm. you were, mm. yeah, you were thinking, you're still working Actually, on I it. Have, I have mentioned it every time I mention my mom's death and her cremation. Mm-hmm. And I mention her cremation often when I talk about minerals. Oh. Why? Because I say my mom chose to be cremated. And so I was brought her Cree mains, right? Uh-huh. And that was her minerals. So yeah. when you, you can't destroy minerals by cooking. Oh. <laughs> so I use uh. this image, right? And I always say, and if I had a do-over on her cremation, I would have done my best to argue her out of it. But I don't have a do-over. And I didn't know then how unsatisfying it would be to me. 
Mm. And after all, I mean, the way I think about it is, really, shouldn't it be, shouldn't the ritual be more for the people who are still here than the ones who are dead? Oh, good wisdom. Just seems to me the ritual is for us to accommodate it, to have a ritual dance with our grief. Mm. And and for me, that was the real difficulty with the cremation, was that there was not really a ritual dance with Mm. the grief. There was the things we do nowadays instead, the memorial service and the, the this and the that, but wasn't the same as when my lover Fern died and she was laid out in her own home mm. and we cut the we cut the rosemary bush that she had grown and packed it around her as people came to save oh. her last eyes. Right? Uh, yes. Isn't that what we want? Oh. oh. Not, here's your mom's ashes. Yeah, I know. I hear you. <laughs> and again, I didn't know until I'd done it how unsatisfying it was. It, it's a really good descriptor. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. I understand. I understand, you know, why she wanted that. Da, 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 da. But for me, for the one who who's still here, it, it, wasn't, yeah. it didn't satisfy me. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you can have a green burial depends right. a lot on the state that you are in. And uh-huh. What... Um, what kind of laws have been passed there? Uh, in New Jersey, I'm not sure. I, 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 I'm not sure. I have to look up, look it up. I, yes. I, I, Thanks to the wonderful I, Internet, all that information is so easily available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my home is Owego, New York, um, up near Binghamton. And uh, I have a plot in the ferry there where my family all is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to make my decision, but I would have to get shipped from wherever I pass away, New Jersey or wherever. I'd have to get shipped up to Owego, but there, there are ways to do that. Yeah. There are, yes. Yeah. Yeah, the funeral homes do that. They they send, you know, something down and, you know. Yeah. There, was a, yeah. there was a famous case in Woodstock of these uh, two intrepid adventurers went off together. And one of them, and if they, were, it was, they had like a motor home or something, and one of them died on the trip. Oh, oh. Right, like he was in the back, like, going to the bathroom or something, and he like, never came back. You know, uh-huh. finally, you know, like pulls the rig over and says, "Hey, hey, man, what's going on?" And there, there he is, like sitting there on the toilet, dead. 
No, dear. So his friend says, what to him seems like the right thing, which is to go home. He just turned around and drove him home. Uh-huh. Right back to Woodstock. And certainly I can understand how very much like the right thing that seemed to him. However, that did carry them quite a few states. And that, oh. that is not legal. Oh. No, you are not allowed to drive bodies from state to state. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that, that is like a no-no. <laughs> Yeah, so so more research and, I mean, have you thought you personally? Is that too personal? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't written anything down, let me put it that way. Okay. Okay. It was, it was one of the fun things about Marie's death, it, perhaps the only fun thing about Marie's death, was that uh... she, she spent most of her days that she had left creating the ceremony that she wanted to be oh. remembered by. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it was wonderful to have that and to say, okay, mm-hmm. Marie would now like us to sing this song. Oh, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And just be able to do that. The whole room mm-hmm. full of people singing the song Marie wanted us to sing. Mm. Yeah, the, the the real, that's special. That's so special. The personalness of you singing. The personal, yeah. All of that. So yeah. it doesn't have to be, it's not like, you know, everybody has to like create this elaborate ritual. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but again, thinking of those who are will still be here, and mm-hmm. what what would be satisfying to them? What would be something yeah. that they would they would say, Ah, now I have really commemorated my beloved. Mhm. Because that's, that, that's what that's what we want to do. We know how busy life is, we know, but we will be yeah. inevitably pulled into the busyness of life and to doing the next thing and the next thing. Mm-hmm. And the vivid everydayness of them will fade. And so we want to mark in a memorial way that life and our connection to it. And for most of us, the Having access to, and it's not even so much the burial. It, for me, it was wonderful that Fern was buried, you know, in, in a nice place in a, a casket that would disintegrate and she would go back to the land. I, I, that was all great. But I think the most satisfying aspect for most of us was the viewing, was the, just that we could actually see her and say goodbye. Oh. Oh, yeah, that, that is, yeah, yeah. Mm. 
closure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something tangible. Yeah. You can put your hands on it. Yeah. And smell and the rosemary. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Oh boy. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, okay. All right. More more to more to think about. And um uh just with the nettle, I'm just gonna veer over to nettle. <clears throat> um I'm I'm just it's 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 a little strong and I just if you had any suggestions to soften it the nettle taste. I I know how good it is. Miso. I, I just put miso in it. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I, I'm miso. Miso. So make it almost like a like the miso soup almost. Exactly. Miso oh, and, and have it warm and think of it as soup. Warm. So great. Yeah. I did a trick, um I'm sure you well, whatever. I put my my um er, uh, infusions um the dried herbs in alphabetical order and it seemed to help me with my routine. So That's for um, you. I yeah, like it. Comfrey was first and I kind of know where I am and what I did. Comfrey yeah. first then um I I don't know what Linden, then oat and then nettle like that, you know, L and then O P. Oh, that's so and, great. <laughs> Well, it is something you would do or already probably do do because you're so <laughs> you're so organized. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and well, it uh, depends uh, on which room of herbs we're looking at. In the kitchen, it's true that I do like to keep them in alphabetical order, but oh. it's kind of a, a, a spurious alphabetical order because <laughs> I do an alphabetical order for the infusion. Herbs, which are of course the best herbs in the world, and then and then in alphabetical order for the rest of the herbs. Ah, on two yes, different yes. shelves. Oh, okay, perfect. But perfect. You, that's just you know, I don't, I don't think necessarily that that's the right way to do it or the best way to do it. I was reading a very, I have been reading a very funny book by David Mamet called um, True and False. And he says, not only is it a simple solution to a complex problem, it is the best solution. Not only is it the best solution, it is the only solution. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. Yes. Yes. Oh. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So and and yeah. All right. Very good. And thank you so so much, Susan. I love the, I love the nettle. That's a really a really good. Thank you so so much. I love you. you. Love I love you, Carol. You. Thanks for calling. I admire Bye-bye. you so much. Oh, Bye. thank you. Thank yeah, you. Green blessing. Green blessing. All right, and there are two callers that have pressed one to let us know they have a question. The next caller has dialed in from the 951 area code. From the 951, you are live with Susan. Hello, Susan? Hi. Hi. Um, I'm just calling you because I have a question. Um, 
I am 55 years old, and I am wondering if I need to start some type of hormone therapy. I'm currently drinking herbal infusions, mm-hmm. but I've been reading a lot about the different types of therapies, and I'm just wondering if I'm doing myself a disservice by not getting on the therapy. Well, I can tell you that dozens of times I have taught menopause workshops, mm-hmm. and I and I have said to the women there, if you are postmenopausal, please stand up. Mm-hmm. And so certain amount of women stand up. And I say, good. If you are taking hormones, please sit down. And a few women mm-hmm. sit down, I say, if you're taking any kind of hormones, bioidentical, prescribed, any kind of hormones except for vaginal estrogen, mm-hmm. and a few more women sit down. I say, okay. If you wish you were taking hormones, sit down. Most of the time, about 90% of the women are rem- are still standing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's up to you. Okay. What do you, how do you envision the rest of your life? Do you envision the rest of your life as trying to mimic a fertile woman? Or do you envision the remainder of life as being a powerful fucking crone? Yeah. I do. Your (laughs) Your body is capable of making every hormone that it needs to be perfectly healthy every day of life. Let me remind you that you were born making 29 kinds of estrogen. Human women make 30 kinds of estrogen. 29 of them are made by our body tissues starting at 20 weeks into the pregnancy. So we're already making 29 kinds of estrogen for mm-hmm. months before we're even born. We make those mm-hmm. every day of our lives before mm-hmm. we bleed, after we bleed. So maiden, mother, and crone. The only mm-hmm. different hormone that is made between puberty and menopause is a very powerful, very dramatic form of estrogen that can lead to pregnancy. What? Oh, my God. So you're asking me if you should be taking (laughs) this powerful, difficult, poisonous hormone when I don't think you have any intention of getting pregnant. No, neither do I. (laughs) I'm very happy where I am right now. Right? Uh, yeah. So oh, yeah, why would you are magic. why would you want it? No. I I have I, I don't take hormones and I have regular perfect lubrication. I have I make sure I take my different teas. I you know, switch them up. Um oh no. <laughs> and so I I'm just wondering if I'm doing something wrong because I don't know 
You're not you know, doing I'm not. Yeah. I'm. I'm sorry that you're reading things that are making you think you're doing <laughs> something wrong. Okay. Uh, but I think that the things you're reading have a common theme, which is you can't trust your body. You should be mm-hmm. so old, and we're going to help you. Oh, my gosh, no. My body works beautifully, just like magic. And right. the tea's just like I'm I'm brewing my um, red clover for tonight, and mm. I'm, I'm going to be sipping on that. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah. That's like my Bible. <laughs> right. Yeah. So one of the okay. things that that we have to remember is mm-hmm. that the medical profession is mm-hmm. very unused to dealing with healthy people. Yeah. Yeah. So we are. if you are a healthy person, then much mm-hmm. of what you read about health doesn't apply to you. Mm-hmm. It applies no. to people who aren't healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, that's that's exactly what I figured, too. Because, you know, you um, you read about all these different types of, like, mineral and vitamin deficiencies. And so, but I, I know that my infusions are taking care of that. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I feel fine. I feel like that's what should be happening so I'm just like wondering because the majority of people you know do take therapies and stuff so I what just is, I wanted to talk to somebody you that believe has believe the majority of people do that yeah and I don't I mean so what okay. has led you to believe <laughs> that oh, the majority what? of people take hormones um because because, like, when you watch different YouTube videos about aging or you talk to people that are your age, they'll, they'll start talking about all these different hormones that they're taking and therapies that they're doing. And, you know, men are doing the testosterone and then women are doing the women therapies of estrogen. And I'm just like, wow, am I doing something wrong? Because I feel great. <laughs> Only 29% of women with natural menopause have ever used hormones. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. That does okay. not sound like most to me. No, it doesn't. But it's it just less seems than like one third. That's true. Yeah. So may okay. I suggest that you're getting your information <laughs> from all the wrong places? Wrong <laughs> How long did it yeah. take me to find out how many women are taking a This is only 29% of women with natural menopause have ever used HRT according to CDC gov data I don't know I, I guess it's a different podcast that I listen to it's and not any podcast I just asked the question yeah how many women what yeah. right? um, how many menopausal women are taking hormones I even misspelled taking yeah while we were talking I typed that into my browser yeah. and that's and the answer crazy. I got wow yeah you see you're well, listening to Opinion, and you are yeah. ignoring facts. Facts, yeah. That's right? true. Yeah, that's very true. So you're letting yourself <laughs> be swayed by other people's opinions. Well, well, thank you for making me feel normal. That is, that is, <laughs> that is the real problem with social media. Yes. 
there is the problem. It's you up to believe that everybody <laughs> is doing something. And there must be yes. something wrong with you if you aren't <laughs> getting a facelift, having a tummy tuck, getting a Botox injection, uh, whatever it is. Yes. I, yeah, that's so true. So it's, please so, stop. Yeah. Next time you feel compelled to watch YouTubes, uh-huh. I want take a deep breath, shut down your device, and go for a walk. Yes, I enjoy that so much. Yeah, that's true. And it's so much better for I your think. mental health than all this stuff you're listening to. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just you're welcome. I just have good faces <laughs> with you. All I just right. Gotta make sure you know feeling good for a reason. Thank you're you. doing great. Walk more, Thank fewer you. YouTubes. Love you. Bye. Green okay. bless. Bye. All right. All right. Are there still and two, or do we have we gotten it down to one? I uh, there is one caller at this time. All right, yep. good. And there's about minutes. So yeah, okay. From the nine one seven area code. From the nine one seven, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Um, Hi. So I have decided to quit smoking cigarettes and um, after pretty regular usage for the last two years, and I've noticed uh, my immune system take a big hit as well as my menstrual cycle. Um, So, yeah, I've decided to stop smoking cigarettes, and I... Would, You've noticed that your immune system is what? Uh, it's taken a hit. Like I, I get sick a lot more often since I started smoking more regularly, um, and I have less energy. And uh, getting sick more frequently doesn't necessarily mean anything about your immune system. Oh, okay. Um, one of the one of the ways that I knew that I had cancer was that I hadn't been sick in quite a few years. Oh, really? Yeah. When your immune system takes a hit, then you can't get sick. Hmm. Okay. Because what you call getting sick is your the, your immune system's reaction to an invader. Okay. So. So, I, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't quit smoking tobacco, <laughs> um, but I'm just saying that I'm not so sure that you really know what your immune system taking a hit is. Yeah, yeah, and honestly, I I attribute it to my increase in cigarettes, but um, I really don't know what it is. Like, I've been sick for in the last six months, maybe like six times. I've been getting sick every month, and I'm out for the count for like and, three, and, four days at a time. Like a cold, a flu, uh, what's going on? Um, this time, like right now, it's it's a cold, but. Uh, a pretty bad cough, uh, I'm tired all the time, um, congested. And then last month it was a fever, I was bedridden and for a few days as well. Um, so it varies. But. Often when anyone gets sick frequently, it's an indication that there's something in their life that they're very upset and don't know how to deal with. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so rather than be 
well enough to confront it, they get sick so that they can focus on themselves. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that makes sense. And it's just certainly a worthwhile thing to focus on yourself. But yeah. it, there's something really amiss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And being nice about it is causing your immune system to take a hit. If your immune system is taking a hit, it's your being nice. Oh, okay. That is doing it. So, yeah. And this, this, you're smoking more cigarettes because you're under more tension. Because you're holding on tighter. Yeah, definitely. And if you can find some way to deal with this situation, it will spread out. You'll have less need to smoke. And you'll have less need have illnesses. Mhm. Okay. Hmm. So then, then the issue becomes finding out what that situation is exactly. <laughs> um, dreams are very good for that. Hmm. Just as you go to sleep, just say, "I'd like to have some guidance, grandmothers, in my dreams." Um, and in the way of uh, smoking less cigarettes uh, with the intention to quit, do you have any remedies or suggestions for the nicotine withdrawals or the yeah the the symptoms that kind of come with weaning off? Uh, did you have the opportunity? Did you have the opportunity to hear Heather and I uh, doing this teleseminar and smoking on Thursday? Oh, no, I did not. Yeah, we did a whole teleseminar on smoking. And oh, okay. she actually went into all of the health-promoting effects of tobacco. Okay. And we talked about how tobacco's gotten a bad rap for being an a herb that causes cancer. When it's not the tobacco, it's how it's processed that actually mm-hmm. causes cancer. And we talked about a variety of herbs that can be used to help people, a variety of things that can be used to help people who want to smoke less tobacco. So I'm going to refer you to that. I know there's a recording. Yeah. I don't know if it's up yet. And my guess, but I don't know, maybe Sarah Ellen knows, my guess is it would be at wisewomanschool.com. Do you okay. know where the teleseminars wind up, Sarah Ellen? Uh, Wise Woman School is a good place to go. You can also find the link is still probably live from the e-zine last week. If you subscribe oh, right. to the, mm-hmm, the teleseminars in there. Also on Susan's Facebook page, there's usually a post about the teleseminar, and the link usually stays live. It'll just take you into the Wise Woman School. Yeah, because it was less than it was just last Thursday. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry, last yeah, no, that's so perfect. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you. Green blessings. Green blessings. Good night. Right, and I am not seeing Chris in the queue yet, but I know he's going to be joining us with an email um, since he's coming in from overseas. So um, 
hopefully he'll press one when he gets here, just in case I'm not able to identify him from the email that um, I'm not sure how that's going to show up. But I don't see him yet. Well, let um, me let me reminisce a little bit. Um, the story that I'm sure many people have heard. I um, was at UCLA in the early 60s, and I was a mathematics major, but it was liberal arts college. So you were required to take liberal arts courses. If I had gone to MIT, which had also accepted me, but wanted me to do a remedial chemistry course, um, and I so wisely decided at 17 that I would never need chemistry in my life, ha ha ho ho. Um, so I had to take this introduction to English literature course. You know, you're not required to take certain courses. You give, you know, you don't have to like within the realm of this, 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 and this. Which one will you pick? And so it's big, big, because it was one of those that you could pick. And we were young, and uh, it was UCLA. So my recollection may have been off, but I recall there being three or four hundred people in the room. It was big auditorium packed. And our professor came a little bit late, so there was a little bit of a hubbub because we were waiting for him. And it was the first class, and we didn't know what to expect. And he came, and he's you know, at a podium up in front of us, and he begins to recite Rilke. And if you have never heard the poetry of Rilke, oh, my goodness, please do. Find someone reading it so that you heard it first in your ears rather than getting it through your eyes. It's an amazing experience. And there were definitely, you know, the, the two reactions in that room. There were those of us who were leaning in, eager for every word, and there were those who were going, what is going on and getting up to leave? And so there was this movement of leaving, leaving and he seemed to respond to that and came down um, and away from the podium and kind of followed and then led us as we left the auditorium. And we all just kind of went out of the auditorium and out into the quad, and he's still reciting Rilke. And some people are getting away as fast as they can, and others of us are just like, oh, my goodness, what is this? What's happening? This is so amazing. This is so wonderful. Well, of course, what had happened was that he had dropped some LSD some hours beforehand, and he was you know, in love with his poetry and sharing it with us. And some of us really caught the fervor of it. And I, of course, caught that he was that he had taken some LSD, and I wanted to know, what is this LSD? What is this stuff? He was so moved, and he was so moved in such a lovely way. And um, at this point, I don't think that I had even um, really... Um, had um, cannabis available to me more than a couple of times. So it was all very different and new. And I had grown up pretty protected, so I'd never seen anybody who was addicted to hard drugs. I didn't grow up in a city. I grew up in a, although I grew up in Dallas, we certainly weren't in the, the downtown part of Dallas. We were out in a suburb, in a pretty suburb. 
Um, so I didn't really know about those things. So the whole mystique and everything that was going on around LSD was very fascinating to me and not at all threatening to me. And I decided that I really wanted to, like, go to where it was happening, so I moved to New York. Now, at this point in my story, people look at me like, did you lose your mind? You left California and went to New York. And I must remind you that we are talking the early 60s here. And it was at Millbrook. That's where Timothy Leary, and he was Richard Alpert then, not Rob Doss. They were teaching at Millbrook, New York. So, yes, I came to New York to connect with LSD. It is true that within the year, my friends back at UCLA were going, nah, 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 they're paying us to take it. And I still, at that point, hadn't connected with the LSD that I had come to find because, needless to say, there were other things going on in my life, most especially What was going on in my life was that I had given birth to my daughter, and I was now the mother of a newborn, and anyone will tell you that that is a full-time job, and there's no time to think about anything at all. My husband's brother came to town, and my husband's brother is a large man who made very large art. And he wanted to open a gallery, and we worked with him to open this gallery of his paintings. And it was there, as I was tending the gallery, that someone came in to me and said, I heard you're interested in LSD, and I said, yes. And they said, open your mouth, and I did. That gallery became the psychedelic Tessin. We, at that point for the gallery, were renting a very kind of typical place on Avenue A by Topkins Square Park, and we just expanded and kept getting more and more of the storefronts and apartments as they came up for rent, as they became vacant. And the psychedelic edition grew out of our ire that the head shop in the village closed at midnight. And we said, what kind of self-respecting head shop closes at midnight? You don't run out of anything at midnight. It's 2 a.m. when you run out of things. So we decided, uh, being the kind of people who don't just complain but do something about it, that we would open a head shop and that it would be open 24 hours a day so that any time you wanted incense or candles or rolling papers, you could find them. Well, of course, it became far more than that. It became a collective of incredibly creative people who designed, sewed, and sold costumes. It became, you know, nowadays there's Etsy, right? Well, the psychedelic Tessin was like a living Etsy. It attracted artisans who made all different kinds of things and used the psychedelic adescent as a place to showcase and sell those things, all things psychedelic. It's uh, 
was also the time and the place that the psychedelic art movement was really getting started. And I became friends with Isaac Abrams, one of the grandfathers, perhaps great-grandfathers at this point, of the psychedelic art movement. In fact, you can't open a book about psychedelic art that doesn't mention Isaac Abe. You've heard me talk very often about Yvette, my walking partner, and before COVID, my gym partner, and Yvette is Isaac Abrams' wife. So, in the psychedelic world, things go around and around and keep coming back to Peace, love, and rock and roll, I think we said. What did Timothy Leary say? Tune in. Tune in drop and out. drop out. Yeah. Right, tune in, drop out. <laughs> so, um, hey, do we have Chris yet? Yeah, Chris is with us. Good. Let me introduce him and we'll get started. Chris Elcock is an independent historian based in France with a Ph.D. from the University of Saskatchewan, Canada. For 12 years, he studied the history of LSD and psychedelics, and in 2013, one of his papers on the American psychedelic movement received an award at a pop culture conference. He is the author of Psychedelic New York, a history of LSD in the city, which will be available in May with McGill Queens University Press. Chris is currently teaching in several higher education institutions. Welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to be with you. Um, and I was so excited to see that your book is coming out. <laughs> it is exciting here too, yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the book. What inspired you and uh, what part of it is your favorite? Oh, hey. <laughs> so um, the book was really um, initially... Uh, so I just caught the end of your of your um, of, of your uh, program, and you were um, telling your listeners about how you came over from California um, to New York to uh, look for history, search for LSD, sorry. And it's um, and I guess that was um, one of the things that motivated me to to write this book, which is which was to um, move away. From um, from California, you know, when you think about LSD and the psychedelic 60s, uh, immediately you think of the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, the Haight-Ashbury uh, district, which uh, of course have um, a, a rich history. But I thought, what about New York? What was happening in, in New York um, at the time? And there's this um, this uh, global metropolis where so much seems to be happening um, all the time. I thought, there's got to be a very rich history uh, over in, in New York. And, and certainly, the more I researched uh, the topic, I, I just um, I, I realized how important this site had been uh, for this, for psychedelic history. And, um, and the book almost 
kind of makes the case that it was as important as um, a site as, as San Francisco, if not even more important. There was just so much uh, happening there as a first as a um, as a place where psychedelics uh, were available. You know, Sandoz, the main distributor for for LSD, was actually uh, based in in uh, New York City as as early as the 1950s, and subsequently uh, moved just uh, across the Hudson River to um, to New Jersey, and so that's where um, all the most of the, uh, of the LSD was being available for research in the in the in the 1950s. But so too was um, was mescaline, and uh, earlier um, early in the 60s, uh, DMT. And so, um, the more I, I looked into into this um, into this topic, and the more I realised that LSD and psychedelics had permeated just about uh, every aspect of of, um, of post-war New York. So, uh, you were just talking about um, Isaac Abrams, and um, Isaac, and, and, and I agree, you, he's, he is. The, the, the grandfather or the great grandfather of uh, of psychedelic art he has the um, he has the somewhat unique honor of, of having a, a psychedelic uh, art career that uh, spans over the course of two centuries right beginning in 1965 and he's still painting today um, and um, Isaac ha- actually has um, a whole uh, chapter dedicated to him in, in the book so um, hopefully uh, readers will be able to learn about um, his life-changing um, experiences uh, with uh, with LSD and psychedelics so along with his uh, wife at the time uh, Rachel uh, Abrams yes. and they opened the uh, the first uh, psychedelic art um, gallery back in in, in 1965 at the Coda Galleries which was more than a place where um, you could um, you could go and see uh, all this all this uh, burgeoning psychedelic art um, under the influence actually for some for some people. It was also um, it was also a place that um, served as a uh, as a meeting ground for all these um, all these acid heads that had been. Um, Sort of experimenting with with these uh, with these new drugs, and it was um, very much a moment of um, yeah, kind of a, a gathering for for all those uh, for all those people, and and it was um, it was it was perhaps the the birth of the uh, of a psychedelic community um, in, in in New York City. So, I guess shifting the emphasis away from California and to New York City was. Uh, an important motivation, and I think the, um, another another thing I, I really wanted to do was to listen to the hundreds, if not thousands, of stories of, of uh, ordinary folks who experimented uh, back then. So um, you mentioned Timothy Leary moments ago. Timothy Leary does feature um, in the book, um, and for, who. Leary had an, an important influence uh, on on, uh, on on psychedelia in uh, in New York uh, for sure. But the book also moves away from uh, it's not just 
um, about Leary. It's also about the, the, the uh, all the New Yorkers who experimented um, with psychedelics and in some cases who had uh, life-changing uh, experiences. So it's it's really um, about listening to uh, listening carefully to those. Uh, well, wait a experiences. second. You mean there's somebody who didn't have a life-changing experience? <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally, yeah, there were a few. Um, you've got to write about them too. <laughs> so, yeah, so some people, some people may have been just curious um, about uh, about LSD, and they may have read about it um, or heard about it in the media, and that kind of spurred their, their curiosity. Um, but um, for some, the experience was not particularly um important and 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 that was that they spent they tried it maybe once or twice and didn't ch choose to investigate further but i should say that they're kind of a minority in the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. yes very much so <laughs> and it, and I, I i agree with you i felt um, very strongly that there was a psychedelic community in New York City, and especially being at you know in a store that was committed to being open 24 hours a day, we got to see a lot of that and a lot of the the interesting you know people. I was you know sitting there when Abby Hoffman said we're going to go to Chicago, <laughs> so there was you know just a lot of different things happening there, and I. I my sense when I talked to you uh, before was that you um, were very um, subtly able to weave the many influences that were going on together in um, what you've done to um, to show this to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's, it's it was a. Uh... So the, the book, I mean, it's it's based on 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 years of um, of research, right? And I actually had to rewrite the whole thing uh, from scratch. Um, so this was year, the, this was ago. actually the paper that got the award, and then you just rewrote it completely. I'm sorry. Was this you said this was this? Did this start as the paper that received that award? Oh no, 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 no. That was, that was a different um, thing. Yes, that was a, that okay. was a paper that was a paper on the on the history of the of the psychedelic movements. So um, that that was also a big a big part of of my research. Um, I spent quite a lot of time thinking um, about the, what the, the putting the psychedelic movement uh, into context. So uh, yes. just um, first, I mean, firstly taking the movement seriously because I mean it has um, over the the, I mean, over the over the decades, uh, the psychedelic movement was very often dismissed as an embarrassment and uh, something that was not to be taken seriously. So um, that was something that I wanted to do from from the start and just really pay attention to all these uh, all the influences um, behind um, this movement and 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 um, what it tried uh, to achieve uh, in a sense. But the book is is only partly about the, um, the psychedelic movement. Uh, I have a whole chapter that focuses on psilocybin, right? And, and psilocybin is, 
is really is is um is, is really interesting because the the the, the timing of the uh, of, of when psilocybin becomes available um in new york is particularly interesting because back then you you, you have um a vibrant research community in new york city which is also something that i had not expected when i started researching this um lsd research had, had started as early as 1950 uh in in new york city so it was really at the forefront of of um cutting edge uh, research into into psychedelics to treat um uh mental illness and so by the by the late 1950s there's already uh, important research um underway so research into lsd and, and mescaline and in 19 um in 1957 um um gordon and Valentina Wasson um, have gotten back from Mazatec country in Mexico and where they have um, written this uh, delightful report on the use uh, of uh, psilocybin mushrooms amongst uh, Mazatec Indians and uh, they've, they've uh, collected with the um, divine healer Maria Sabina. And I am a woman who looks into the insides of things. <laughs> Do you know our chance? I'm sorry? Do you know her chance? Her chance? Her chance. No? Yes. Her chance have been translated. I, I am a woman of the great mother. I am a woman who is well prepared. I am a woman who looks into the insides of things. Yes, it's because I am a mother of sap. Yes, I am a mother of dew. Yes, I am the mother of the evening star. So, um, did you did you, um, did you did you did you remember the the Watson uh, article, Susan? Then oh yes, oh. yes, yeah. What it was, was it? You know, it was like morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, just the, the whole. Um, for me, her saying that the little people called her when she was what three, four years old. Uh-huh. And that she started working with psilocybin, she called us the little people, at that age. And I thought, what would it be like to be the mother of that child? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so obviously a, a um the the um, a, a, a very important um a very important character and a very important moment this this encounter of um the the, the wassons with this um with these ancient um traditions and so by the late 1950s um you see people from greenwich village actually going to mastic country to experiment um yeah. with um with mushrooms and then Nearly a few years later, uh, in, in, uh, in the early 60s, um, this reaches the ears of Timothy Leary, and who uh, encounters uh, psilocybin uh, over in Mexico. And this is um, another life-changing uh, experience. And so uh, by then, Sandoz has synthesized 
psilocybin and made it available to research. But very few research, uh, research teams start um, investigating psilocybin as part of their research because most of them are already focusing on, on mescaline and, um, and LSD. So what is fascinating, I think, um, to get back to New York, is that psilocybin almost made a direct transition from the lab uh, to the streets, uh, thanks to Timothy Leary, who started distributing it uh, to, um, to the Beats and to um, jazz musicians and, uh, and the New York media, obviously, which is, as you know, New York being a, a huge center for uh, the media, um, the psilocybin soon begins reaching these um, underground circles, uh, you could say, and 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 that is the that is the uh, early days of the psychedelic movement before Timothy Leary uh, encounters LSD. Wow. Well, that's before I got to New York, but certainly there were things going on in the jazz scene out in L.A. at that time, too. And it's interesting, that kind of dynamic tension between mm -hmm. those two coasts. <clears throat> and when you were talking about New York, I was thinking, we had the first B-in. I remember yeah. I remember painting myself completely and then getting on the subway with my one-year-old daughter and going to Central Park for the BN. Right. Do you remember the um Do you remember the uh the banana peel thing? People selling dried banana peels. We peel. sold so much. You sold banana peel. We had a person in charge of baking banana peel. Come on. <laughs> and, and what was really funny is we're giving LSD away for free. We're selling the baked banana peel, but we're giving the LSD away. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners are wondering what we, what we're talking about. <laughs> so. Back in, in, in 1967, the, the, um, the underground press started to report on, um, on, on dried banana peels, which supposedly made you high. And, um, and, and the, 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 this story started to spread, not just in, in New York City, but the underground uh, press was extremely connected uh, in the entire United States. So this, this idea that you get high if you smoked dried banana peels by rolling it to a joint, that's reached the, the West Coast and other uh, cities uh, across, uh, across the US. And it became so prevalent that the FDA actually uh, launched an investigation to see, to understand what was going on. And um, after this investigation, they concluded that the whole thing had just been a hoax. <laughs> it was and, uh, the kind of it was the kind of placebo effect where you yeah. know that that it's a placebo. You know nothing is really going on, but it's <laughs> it makes you laugh so hard inside that you that you do it because it's so much fun. So I want to, um, you know, usually um, I ask people to 
tell the listeners where they can get in touch with them, but I don't know if you want people to get in touch with you. So I'm not going to ask you that, but I'm going to give you a little moment here for whatever it is that you want to do, if you want to tell people how to get your book or anything like that. Sure, yeah. Well, the the book is um, going to be available uh, in uh, in May, I think uh, May the the fifteenth, uh, I believe. Um, you can probably pre-order it on the website of uh, McGill Queen's uh, University Press. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, I yeah. Guess. And it's called Psychedelic New York: A History of LSD in the City. Absolutely. That's, again, McGill, M-C-G-I-L-L, McGill, Queens, University Press. So, since we're on a blog talk show, tick, tick, they cut us off very severely. (laughs) This is your last chance to share something that you haven't gotten a chance to talk about yet that you really wanted to before we're done tonight. Go ahead, Chris. Well, Susan, um, I'd like, to, first of all, to thank you for your, uh, for your invitation. It's been uh, wonderful uh, chatting with you again. And I'd also like to thank you once again for agreeing to speak with me uh, a few months ago when we first um, connected. And it was a really, it was a really fun uh, conversation that we had uh, back then. And so to all... Uh, Susan's uh, listeners uh, out there. Susan is actually in the book. Expect to read about uh, Susan's uh, times in New York City during the psychedelic 60s and to learn more about the psychedelic attestant. So once again, thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, Chris. And, you know, one of the things that I have noticed because I teach worldwide is that American herbalism is different than herbalism anywhere else on the planet. And one of the reasons is that all of those of us who revived herbalism in the 60s and 70s were changed by psilocybin, by peyote, by LSD, by things that showed us that we are one isn't words and put us on the path of finding ways to explain to everybody else why it is that herbal medicine is people's medicine and the history that you've written I think is very important for people to understand how it is that American herbalism has wound up so much on the side of the plant and so little on the side of science. Mm. Thank you, Chris. And thank thank you, you, Sarah Ellen. Green blessings, everybody. Herbal medicine is people's medicine. It grows right outside your door, and if it's not growing yet, hang on. It's coming. It's coming. Green blessings. Good night.